leave a long intro. A yeah, long I don't intro know how today. long that's going to last, how long that's going to be in favor, but I can tell you what. What's up, buddy? How you doing? Hot? Tired? Yeah. I just fell asleep, ladies and gentlemen. Come home about 30 minutes ago and... It's because you're old. Started watching a Netflix series on the Boy Scouts of America. You sound like my grandfather. Fell asleep. When he was old. Yeah. Speaking of old... Are your grandparents Have you always been this old, or is this something Have new? I always been this old? Yeah. I'm an old soul. Yeah. I'm an old soul. I've always been an old soul. Yeah, absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, today we've got a very special episode. We are going to get to know one another. Actually, we already know one another. We're going to get to know you, or let you but get to know us. We're going to let the audience get to know us. Probably something we should have done in the first episode. You know, we should have come to you and... I'm sorry, told you we, who were, we, were we, are, we are not more interesting than Sigmund Freud. No, but at least, or Hitler, the least we could have done was sort of introduce ourselves <laughs> and let people should've. know, you know, what this was all about. So I figured now's as good a time as any. What, we're 12 episodes in, actually 1,300 downloads. At least. We're growing. It, actually over 1,300 downloads. All right. Um, it seems like just yesterday I was begging uh, would-be listeners to download so we could reach our 1,000 download goal. And now we're forcing and them. And here we are. Here we are. <laughs> That's right. Did get one of those uh, shirts out to a listener from New York. I hope that listener is enjoying. Maybe she'll take a photo and send it to me so I can put it on the website. Absolutely. Hey, if you guys haven't already checked out the um, Facebook page, we got to put them on the couch Facebook page. Got to put them on the couch TikTok. And an Instagram. An Instagram. We got a little bit of everything. In fact, we even have a... Email address, put them on the couch at gmail.com. You know what else? We have two incredible hosts. <laughs> yeah. Two I don't incredible know about that. hosts. Hey, speaking of hosts, I am I I, I do want to give thanks to some of our co-hosts over the past couple of weeks. You guys have allowed um us to take little breaks here and there. Bob Brennan, thank you for doing the uh segment on pets. Thank you, Bob. And uh Ben Sorensen, thank you, man, for being our guest last week and talking a little bit about vinyl. Absolutely, it's coming uh, back. You know, yeah. I was just at Barnes and Noble. Yeah, the back, uh, the back row of Barnes and Noble. Mm-hmm. Nothing but vinyl. Nothing but nothing vinyl. But How about vinyl, that? man. Well, My daughter's got a bunch of Taylor Swift vinyl nice. records. She's obsessed. well, as I mentioned, Taylor Swift is the number one selling artist on vinyl right now of all time. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> I don't know about all time, but could yeah, be more, more Taylor Swift sold than any other artist currently. That's crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, um. I figure we'll just do like a little round robin. Maybe the first uh, segment here, I will let the audience get to know you, Nelson, the yeah, poli sci guy. Poli sci, and baby. then second segment, we'll uh, we'll turn well, the know, tables, and I'll. I think it is important right off the bat to tell our listeners that I have a split personality. Oh yeah, I am a poli sci guy, but I'm also a history guy. <laughs> this is credentialed. True. Yeah, credentialed, double credentials. Well, look, um, why don't you go ahead and start by just simply telling the audience how you got here. How I got here on the podcast <laughs> or how I got to, like, well, me, I mean, how I became an academic. How far do you need to go back, huh? Yeah. How, no, tell us the very beginning, man. Like, yeah, where sure, were you sure. born and, yeah, and so what was like, growing up like for you? And yeah, did, so. you, did you, did you um, foresee becoming a big podcasting uh, deal when you were a kid? Like, what was about your childhood that let you know, man, I'm going to be a podcaster one day? I don't I don't know that I see me being a big podcaster now, but, um, you know, I would say to that, yes or no. I mean, I grew up, you know, pretty middle-class lifestyle in, in Connecticut, moved around a lot, went to, uh, grew up in, you know, spent two years in Atlanta, 
um, from 12 to 14. Went to the Olympics there, which is pretty neat. Oh, wow. Well, for what sport? Uh, we went for baseball. I didn't do gymnastics. Um, no. I was actually there the a few hours before the, the bombing. That was the one where they accused Richard Jewell. Yeah, Richard Jewell. Of, uh, of now, did you, win a, did you win a medal for baseball? or Did I win a medal? No, I did not. No. Oh, you didn't no. go. It, like it didn't to go for you no. went to watch. So yeah, I'd uh, probably go for that um, either synchronized swimming or or the one with the ribbons and the balls. What was that called? Uh, rhythmic gymnastics. Rhythmic gymnastics. Rhythmic I don't gymnastics. know if they still do that anymore, but I actually thought it was pretty cool. I would do curling because it's the only thing I'm probably qualified for. Yeah. Now look, I'm in good shape, but I'm just not uh, not never been a really great athlete. I was never a, a mathlete. I was never a mental gymnast. No. Um, Growing up, I was, look, I was pretty bad in school. Um, really? And, and, you know, it's funny because I was never in trouble. It wasn't like a behavior thing. And I was really good in classroom discussions. I was interested. Um, but I was diagnosed at a very young age when I was uh, six years old with attention deficit disorder. ACDC as my uh, yeah. as my father-in-law. Dude, Rest, in peace. No. Rest in peace, Pat. <laughs> he used to refer to it as ACDC. <laughs> no, I am. Um, you know, I, I, when I was diagnosed, um, I had moved from Connecticut. Right. I had started kindergarten at five, like most kids. I went to Virginia, and they're like, this kid's not progressing. My parents took me. I you know, did all the tests. And, you know, six years old is really, really young. Um, even in that time, that was, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, mm-hmm. when almost everything was being diagnosed yeah. as attention deficit disorder, right? Love to talk to you about that. I think there's some overdiagnosis, but yeah, yeah. Uh, in my case, uh, I was put on Ritalin and I was remanded. I did not graduate kindergarten, mm. so I had to repeat kindergarten. Yeah, gra- yeah. I graduated school a year late. Man, they must have done some pretty uh, high level things in kindergarten since the days. Uh, I struggled. Jason, of course, I, since I, this guy went to kindergarten, I struggled. We didn't do very much. I, I struggled with water table. How about that? Um, uh, at nap time, I wasn't very good. I didn't now, did you have some. an all-day kindergarten, or was it a half day? We had day? an all-day kindergarten. Oh, okay, yeah. In, in Connecticut, we had an all-or in um, Virginia, we did have yeah, an all-day kindergarten. you guys are overachievers up above the Mason-Dixon line. Yeah, well, you know, that's how we roll. Um, no, I was below the Mason-Dixon line. Actually, in Connecticut, it was half day. Wow, uh, and you get down to Virginia, and they have to double up. Yeah. I guess that's yeah. the makeup for... So, so I would say in my past, like, was there anything that drew me to academics not really i did have a love of history i had a love of politics i told my mom when i was in kindergarten probably the second time mm-hmm. that i wanted to uh, run for president one day get out yeah yeah i said yeah. Uh, and you know my teacher laughed at me so i came home and i was crying because i was in kindergarten and uh my mom said well, you know what's wrong i told her and she said why would you want to be the president and i said the president helps people and i think i'd be good at that and so I have always had, you know, I guess a servant's heart. I've always liked to help, and I think that's something innate. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I started teaching at my, my college when I was 28. Yeah. If you'd have told 18-year-old me in 10 years you're going to be living in North Carolina, no connection to the state. Yeah, college professor. And you're going to be a college professor. You know, it's funny, when if, if you were to describe your life to 18-year-old you— I mean, would it make sense? No, of course not. And so to me, I'd be like, what? But I believe it was a failure of imagination on my part. And I don't know about you, but um, did you have any role models? Uh, were your parents educated? Did they ask you or encourage you to dream big? Like, like No, no. Um, president's my, pretty lofty so, goal. So you know? let me split that up. I did. I moved away from my mother when I was 12. I went to live with my dad. I was, okay. 
no, he did not have any high expectations. In fact, he told me that, you know, given my grades and academic performance, I should probably be a truck driver. Oh, a little reverse or, psychology, or, or, as no, uh, my no, students No, 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 there was no reverse psychology. He, oh, he, said was, you should be, he was being legitimate. He said, you're lazy, you should probably drive a truck or mm. maybe be a fireman. Well, you know, that's not uncommon for people to assume someone with, you know, attention deficit uh, is just lazy, right? I mean, we still see that to this day. There's yeah. some pretty educated people out there that go, look, this person just needs to be whipped into shape. This person just needs to, like... Um, get 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 bit by the ambition bug they're they're just lacking motivation it has nothing to do with brain chemistry or attention deficit right what's that well you know it, i i really struggled with my disability growing up um mm-hmm. you know and maybe that drove me to want to you know give back in terms of academics to help students uh and that's why you know i have a love of the community college system because it is a lot of students who you know they haven't matriculated they are mm-hmm sort of lost, like a lot of 18, 19-year-olds. Many first generations. Absolutely. And so I, I, I was drawn to that when I did find academics. But, you know, it, when you're a kid and you have attention deficit disorder, all you want to do is be normal. Yeah. All, all any kid wants to do is be normal. I'm being pulled out to go to a special ed classroom. I'm, you know, having to go get medicine from the nurse every right. day, medicine that really altered who I felt I was. Mm-hmm. Really, you know, I don't think that I would treat a child with ADD the way my parents did for me. I'm not saying they did wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, my mother, she was kind of, uh, my mother was definitely somebody I looked up to when it came to academics. She went back to school when she was 40. Oh, wow. Uh, She actually taught at the same college I did for a brief time, and now she's a doctor um, of nursing. She's a doctor. She has her wrote her dissertation on lactation consulting. Okay. And she is... Uh, Shout out to the Le Leche League. She is actually in charge of the simulation labs over at University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Very nice. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, and so that was sort of an inspiration, watching somebody who was 40 saying, look, yeah, I wasn't good in school, or maybe I didn't have the opportunities, mm-hmm. but later on they presented themselves, and right. I took advantage. Yeah. So I guess she sort of gave me that initial interest in well, or talk, love of academics. Talk about taking advantage then. I mean, did you go to college straight out of high school? What'd oh, God, you do? no. God, no. No, I joined the military. Really? Yeah, I joined the military. Um, I didn't know what to do. Um, everybody's asking me, what do I want to do? What do I want to do? I don't know, drink and party. Mm-hmm. I think I'd be pretty good. So So the military seemed like a pretty good bet for that. I Actually, it seemed like a good bet after 9-11. I joined uh, the service three weeks after September 11th. Oh, wow. Uh, and I, I, was still in the, I was still in high school. Uh, I was a senior, but I joined the delayed entry program, and upon graduation, I went right into uh, basic training. Okay. Um, And I think realizing what a a life of hard labor would look like. Yeah, I was was, hard work in the military. Yeah, you know, I just uh, I let me tell you this: my time in the service was an absolute pleasure. Um, Everybody says, "Oh, thank you for your services." Don't don't thank me. You paid for it. I got two degrees. I got to see the world. I've been to 38 different countries. Uh, most of those I saw, or not most of them, about half of them I saw while I was in the service. I mm-hmm. loved it. I didn't want that to be my life. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't want to leave my family for a year at a time. God bless anybody who can continue to do that. But, you know, I met my wife when I was in middle school, mm. middle school bus stop romance. And we had gotten married about a year after I entered the service. And I knew I didn't want uh, my life with her to be interrupted nonstop. So uh, that's when I sort of went back to school, and I never 
the first two classes I took, um, I quit. So second two classes I took, I quit. So after four classes, I had a GPA of, I don't know, zero. Wow. Yeah. So you're picking right up where you left off in yeah, high school. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then, you know, I, I did have a, I had a moment. I said, maybe it'll never happen for me. Wow. And I, I, I was kind of lost because I was always academically curious. Mm-hmm. I loved, I, I read all the time. I loved to debate and keep up with current events, talk politics. Um, and then I took two more courses when I was in Afghanistan and I really felt like, okay, I got to get serious. And they were anthropology and American government. Okay. And I don't know, I just sort of fell in love with the process of not getting a job after you got a degree, but of living an academic life, yeah. an intellectually curious Now, were you life. being treated still for ADHD at this point? Or you I was up not. I, I, I was not. Do you, think, mm-hmm. um, do you think that ADHD sort of brain... I, I, I want to clarify, I did not have ADHD. I, ADHD. Had, I had attention deficit well, Do you think disorder. that ADD might have in any way sort of formed the basis for the success that you would have in academia ultimately? Absolutely. You know, a lot of people think... That having ADD or ADHD, as as it were, um, is a good good excuse. Is a good sort of reason to give for why we might fail at things, academic or otherwise. But I mean, I I guess there's at least um, another way of interpreting that is that you know people with ADHD they're they're said to be impulsive, they're said to be distractible, they're said to try to put too many irons in too many fires. But I guess the fact of the matter is, you know. I'll put it to you this way. When I was a kid yeah, and I looked at ADD as a disability, yes, it was something that I desperately wanted to get rid of. Sure. It was something that I didn't want to be a part of me. Yeah. I stopped taking medicine. It was medicine. holding you back, yeah. Absolutely. I stopped taking medicine when I was in high school or when I was in the military. Um, never thought about going back on medicine despite you know, frustrating um, my wife and kids sometimes mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. Uh, you know, lack of attention to detail. Leaving a few things oh, undone, sure, maybe. Sure, yeah, yeah. sure. Not all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. Sure. My wife but here's the thing. I couldn't separate who I am from that part of myself because it does provide me with a, a curiosity and a drive. And yes, a, a sense of, of restlessness, of, mm-hmm. you know, wanting to learn more and see more and do more. Um, I, I have great energy, and I think that's part of why I have great energy. So I do think it was an integral part of what drove me to eventually excel academically. Well, it does seem like you're, you're pretty optimistic. You you have a pretty um, sometimes Pollyannish view of, of the world, and I think that can benefit you, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't know if that's ADD that's giving you that, that's supporting that, but, you know. It's all me. It's all yeah, me. Yeah, it's baby. all you. It's all me. It's, uh, I don't, yeah, again, how can you separate it, right? How can you mm-hmm. separate something that makes you who you are? Yeah. From yourself, and I think part of my frustration and my relative unhappiness as yeah. a child was trying to do that constantly, trying to that thread that needle, to thread that needle to say, okay, because you're being told well, you have medicine because this is a problem. Is it a problem? Mm. Um, I don't know. I I, yeah. I still struggle with that part of my life. Yeah. Well, there's there's some interesting theories out there that look at ADHD or ADD from a very a uniquely positive perspective, right? A real functionalist perspective. Um, one of them says that people that have ADHD, the most severe cases, are also prone to severe cases of procrastination. And <clears throat> on the surface, that might seem like a really, really bad thing, right? You're waiting too long to get started, then you're never going to really put quality work into anything, and you're never perhaps going to finish anything. But 
One interpretation is that if you are waiting longer to get started, it might be because you are putting more energy, creative energy, into sort of um, planning and coming up with different ideas before you get started. Sure. Right? So there, can, there could be sort of a connection between creativity and procrastination. I can absolutely see that. Now, look, that obviously would work well for a DJ. That <laughs> might work well for a comedian. Um, probably wouldn't work well for every job. What is it about your job that you think might uh, lend itself to a, a mind like yours? What is it about teaching in general, political science, history, or otherwise? Sure. That you think sort of so political science, makes this possible. history, podcasting, yeah. uh, working on the Board of Education. All of these things provide me outlets to explore. Mm. Uh, I've always just been really curious about why things work the way they work, why things are the way they are. And in a classroom setting when I'm preparing a lesson, I'm a student for, I don't know, three hours, and yeah. then I am the teacher for an hour. Mm -hmm. You're always allowed to have something different brought in every day. There's no monotony. Um, there's there's no rhythm. rules, really, when it comes to, I guess, um, making things fit, making connections, asking questions. No, right? no. Yeah. it's it's You can be as distracted as you want to be. You can say, hey, sure. I wonder if this relates to that or and, I wonder if, and yeah. so oftentimes when you have those moments of wait a minute I see something mm -hmm. you can go and find it and yeah. and not go and find it. you have to find that's part yeah. of your job it's part of, it's part job, of yeah. what you're giving We're to your students getting paid to go on a wild goose chase potentially sure yeah sure and I, I just love that aspect of it I worked in a job like I said in the military for six years six yeah. and a half years um which was different sometimes when I was deployed but you know for the most part it was the same routine as a police officer, the same routine, the same clothing, the same everything. Yeah. Every day, Monotonous. I was miserable. Yeah, routine. Miserable. I never yeah. found inspiration or satisfaction from my work. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't imagine being anything other than uh, an educator. I really couldn't because I don't know what that would look like. Yeah. And I don't want to know. <laughs> and again, we're not saying, ladies and gentlemen, that you want to just throw your kid's medicine away. We're not saying that oh, you God, can necessarily no, overcome it. Um or that it's actually, you know, best for any sort of career. The truth is uh, you kind of have to pick your poison, I guess. If you're a math professor, you're probably going to need to pay more attention to detail. Uh, things are more routine formulate, perhaps, than, say, someone who's teaching political science or history. Sure. And, I look, I'm 40 years old. I mean, I'm sure I've learned ways to cope. So you come into my office, cope, yeah. you see a big whiteboard that I just started doing this year because yeah. – I have so many projects and so many things I'm working on, so many things I'd like to do. You realize you can't keep them straight. I just have to write them down. Yeah, I understand and, that. And then they never get finished. They roll to the next day, but I'm more productive. Yeah. So. Well, you can keep things in, in front of you, yeah. if you if you write them down, that's for sure. Yeah, so I, I guess uh, for me, political science was an avenue that I pursued. I said I wanted to be in government, you know, help. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, I think politics is so maligned today. Um, that people are blinded to what it really is. Yeah. Um, somebody asked me, uh, one of my students said, well, what exactly is political science? A chemistry instructor was in the room. We were, you know, he just stopped by to visit the class. And he said, you know, I've always thought that if you had to add science to your discipline, it's not science. Hmm. You have to add the Fair term enough. science. It's not real science. Okay. Is that true? Sure. Yeah, that's true about political science anyway. That's not science. Uh, it is, of course, the study of, you know, 
public policy, systems of government. Um, but that's just high-level stuff. Really, yeah. you know, in history, there is a mark of delineation between prehistoric man and civilized man. Mm-hmm. And yes, that mark is made by agriculture, by the beginnings of gender roles, uh, by pastoralism, and, you know, working with animals, domesticating animals. But politics is essential in that story. It is deciding who gets what, when they get it, how they get it. How are we going to share resources if we are going to share them? Mm. How are we going to do that? And it is really the study. And if you're doing it right, by the way, you bring in psychology. You bring in all the social sciences because it is the study of how we became and remain civilized. Nice. Nice. So what would you say to someone like yourself who is in high school or maybe just about to graduate, um, kind of floundering, don't really know what they want to do, maybe they too have been diagnosed with attention deficit or attention deficit hyperactivity, pondering the military, maybe thinking about community college, um, maybe never really been high on themselves, never really got a lot of accolades for their um, academic mind. What do you say? What kind of advice could you give uh, one of these up-and-comers? I would tell any high school student, regardless of their situation, to follow what you're passionate about. Mm. When we had our you know, meeting with my parents and you know, my teachers and my special ed counselor and all this stuff, yeah. uh, you know, trying to figure out I was in 10th grade, well, where does Nelson excel? What should Nelson be focused on? I wrote down that I loved history. I took every single history course offered. Did you really? In my high school. Oh, yeah. And my parents and my teachers said, that's not a job, though. Mm. And I said, yeah, I guess that, that can't be a job. And what I've come to realize and what I still believe is if you love something, then you really have a love for it. A real, you know, if it comes from your socks. Yeah. Um, you're going to make enough money. Yeah, you'll make to, it. You'll make enough. I don't know what you'll make. Uh, I know what I make. I know it's not a lot. I know it's enough. It's mm-hmm. enough. I'm okay. I'm here. I can go on vacation. I can make it work. And uh, I would say that because of my career, and in part because of my career, um, and obviously in a large part because of my family, I'm a happy guy. Yeah. And uh, I think that's enough for me. Well, tell me this. What is it or what was it that inspired you or made you think, you know what? I think today I want to try my hands at podcasting. I mean, I think I know, but why don't you let the audience know sort of how you came to this? Like, what was your uh, mindset surrounding podcasting? Like, when did you really decide, hey, I want to put this into action? So I, I started listening to podcasts pretty late. I started listening probably like a year and a half or two years ago. My sister uh, turned me on to a podcast called Radio Rental. Yeah, during the pandemic. I think a lot of people uh, yeah, yeah. moved to podcasting. Yeah, and I was, you know, I would run, I'd listen to Radio Rental. Okay. Had, have you ever heard of Radio Rental? I haven't. Really cool stories. Hey, shout out to Radio Rental. Absolutely. Uh, I, I don't have any weird stories, but uh, I know some people who do. So if they want to, uh, if they want to mine, uh, you know, our college for some crazy stories, they're more than welcome to. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it's um, kind of paranormal, kind of scary, weird stuff. Okay. But you know, I was turned on to that, and I started thinking about, well, man, you know, I have a lot of cool stories that I could share, a lot of cool experiences uh, related to 
academics. And then I sort of looked broader because there was a lot of teaching podcasts and academic podcasts and, you know, talking to you about psychology. And I just mentioned the intersectionality between our disciplines. Yeah. So, man, there's, wouldn't it be fun to start to psychoanalyze um, just different concepts, different ideas, some people, some historical yeah. characters, but like, how cool would it be like when, when there's a presidential race? And I think we should do this yeah. to put our presidential candidates on the couch. Yeah. Um, and, you know, not would, literally, but not literally. figuratively. I mean, if they want to come to the garage and sit around and sure, sure. And do a back and forth, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely extend that offer to them. But then when, when you started mentioning some other ideas you had, like you said, let's put, let's put the morning coffee on the couch yeah. or like put marketing on. Man, there's so many things that I could discuss from a political science standpoint yeah. and from a history standpoint. And then you can just bring in all your information and all your expertise with uh, psychology and we can really just sort of analyze why do we enjoy the things we enjoy? Why do we fear the things we fear? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I look forward to some of the collaborations we've discussed moving forward. I know Halloween is coming up, you know, in six, eight weeks. So uh, I think having a discussion about what that is, yeah, um, I can do some of the history on it. I know there's a lot of psychology in terms of mask wearing. Yeah. Right. Uh, and mass hysteria. And if mass you think hysteria. About, uh, you think about the candy uh, 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 conspiracies surrounding people trying to poison uh, trick-or-treaters and Hospitals opening up their doors, emergency rooms opening up their doors, exactly. and X-raying all the candy back in the day. I don't know if they still do that, but I, I remember that very well. Yeah, so for for me, I guess that's that's what it was. It was this ability to see an opening, um, and that's immediate. But long term, I think uh, I was interested in just being able to share my perspective mm -hmm. and offer it to people. Yeah, uh, I don't know what it's worth, but. I don't know. I think it's interesting enough to share. Yeah. Well, um, I'm sure that you'll uh, hear something similar from me, but you know, I've been thinking for a while about what, what podcasting means to me. Why do I want to do it? What, what is it that sustains me? And, and honestly, um, I think about a coloring book, you know, um, <laughs> my kids, when they open up a page of a coloring book, the thing that they're supposed to color isn't always that impressive in and of itself. Uh, in and of itself, it might just be you know a flower or a balloon. But after they get through putting all the colors and the textures and the markings all over it, they've transformed this thing into something that you could have never imagined it was to begin with. Then, of course, there are adult coloring books, and these um, are not as interesting to me. Like when my wife colors in an adult coloring book, she takes a very elaborate scene and just makes it look so beautiful. But she does it by keeping the colors congruent and um, inside the lines. And honestly, I think I have always and continue to look for ways to bring my inner child forth. And podcasting for me it seems like that coloring book, right? Like in school, when I'm a professor, I have to stay inside the lines to some degree, right? There are rules that we play by. Um, I have a syllabus, right? We have books. So podcasting for me is, yeah, my attempt to go outside the lines a little bit, well, cre I create I, something new. And I, I think in a way that's kind of what we're doing, right? We, we paint with words. 
um, and relatively average oratory. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that idea, I think you know, part of my vision for this, um, and I don't know how big it'll get. I don't really care because I enjoy doing it. Yeah. But part of my vision is to take people and show them sort of the types of conversations that you might hear if you just walk by any office on any college campus in the United States. Yeah. The weird explorations, mm -hmm. the bizarre connections that you can and should try to make uh, that really make life kind of interesting. Yeah, I've often thought both sides of the political spectrum, at least the extremes, have it so wrong. They've been so misinformed, right? On the one hand, you've got the extreme sort of conservatives that think that we are talking all day long um, in an effort to indoctrinate students <laughs> sexually yeah. or with their gender identity. And the liberals think that we are, you know, talking about the minutia regarding publications and um, making sure things are parenthetically documented. And I'm like, it's really neither. The bulk of what goes on is exactly the kind of stuff you and I are doing here in this podcast. Yeah. Right. Exploring. We are, we're just exploring. We're just trying things out. We're just yeah. really connecting dots that maybe no one even considered putting together. Yeah. Well, you know, I always say this, and this is, you know, uh, as we start to wrap up my section, I'll tell you the ideological person yeah. is in trouble. They are blinded. Uh, they can't see possibility. They're not curious. What they do is when an ideological person, liberal or conservative, gets a question, they have the answers. So they bend the question to fit the answers that they already have. They don't actually explore. They don't experience. No. In fact, I talk a lot about this very thing um, when I'm talking about how to do science. I was just talking to my students today about that. I said, you know, I want to put people in groups. I want to brainstorm because I believe that the pursuit of knowledge is an iterative process, right? Yeah, you right. come up with these ideas. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're terrible. People give you sort of their take on it. Whatever's left, you don't stop. You, you reintroduce those again to another population of people, and you keep revising, and you keep asking better and better questions. I said, right. if you don't open yourself up to this iterative, brainstorming, crowdsourcing process that I think is what makes learning and education so beautiful and powerful, then you're never really going to answer any of life's big questions. You're never going to solve any of the big problems because your your questions themselves are not even any good. Absolutely. Like the questions, we, we forget. It. It's the questions in large part that God's the answers. Yes. If you'd never asked the right question, then you have no hope of, of solving a problem. Well, I, I will leave you with this. I felt for a long time working in a type A personality, dominant, you know, patriarchal uh, world. Mm -hmm. And I'm speaking now of the U.S. Army sure. and of uh, the Department of the Army Police Force. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Oh, no, sir. So lonely. Wow. And sad mm. because there was thoughts and ideas that I had, and I had already gone to school. I had two of my credentials, and nobody wanted to share these things. Nobody wanted to have these discussions. 
Mm. And I have found that education enriches all aspects of a person's life. All, there's nothing, food, uh, drugs, sex, uh, music, money. entertainment, money. There's nothing in a person's life that is not enriched and made more fulfilling by education and by living an educated life. Hey, well, I think that's a great place for us to stop. Let's switch chairs. And uh, maybe switch chairs. <laughs> and switch uh, chairs. Talk a little bit about me. I'll put you on a couch. Yeah. Hello again. Seems like just yesterday we were doing this. Welcome back. Welcome back. Um, Thank you. So before we officially dive in, I'm here with my partner in crime, my colleague, Jason McCoy. Um, we uh, we were talking about ADD. And I'm going to let the audience know this is funny. So both Jason and I obviously have attention deficit or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And uh, every or, or at least some symptoms associated with what <laughs> one might think of as ADD or ADHD. There you go. Uh, and, w- and one such symptom is like forgetting things. If you're doing multiple things, like let's say sometimes you might forget to hit the record button when you're podcasting. Yeah, man, you're so excited about you're all so these ready. other things you're going to try, right? <laughs> you're going to bring up the music. You're going to hit the bah, bah, bah sound. You're going to hit some other sound pad. You're going to do the audience applause. You but know? It, 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 it is all for naught without that Sometimes. button, buddy. Man, we, we've, we've, we've had, had some pretty good takes. Twice. We've, we've had, had some pretty good first takes that went unrecorded. <laughs> two hours. Oh, God. <laughs> Maybe not two hours, but certainly an hour. Now, Jason, here's where I'm going to start with you, buddy. Yeah. We're in your garage. Oh, hold on. I need to hit record. <laughs> we are in your garage. Yeah. Um, is there some... Reason that you punish yourself um, by placing your work environment into this type of monstrous heat. Well, are you a, are, is this? Yeah, am I a masochist? Well, look, I mean, for those that have never seen or experienced my garage studio, I want to say that this is not the first iteration. When my wife and I decided to carve this garage up into a part lawnmower repair shop and part office slash studio, we thought we would just put up some makeshift walls, uh, put a window unit or some fans in here and call it a day. But we quickly realized, oh my God, it's so hot in the summer, so cold in the winter, that's not going to do it. (laughs) So I went in and I started putting some drywall up, put a real sort of sliding door up and bought a better air conditioner and more fans and that didn't do it. So then I said, shoot, um, let me let me button up the windows with some blackout heat-reducing curtains. Let me tear the drywall out and put some really thick insulation in the walls. So did that. Still didn't work. Then I called up a company and said, I want you to climatize my office so that if I can get it cold, the cold won't escape. If I can get it warm in the winter, that won't escape too quickly. And they're like, dude, you're going to have to spray some closed cell insulation into the walls, into the ceiling. And I said, closed cell, what do you mean? He's like, you're going to have to basically turn it into a Yeti cooler. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, that sounds expensive. Like, oh, yeah, it's going to be expensive. So three or $4,000 later, 
I've got this thing yetiized, <laughs> and uh, I've got a pretty nice portable five and one air conditioning system, about seven hundred bucks from Costco. Uh, as Nelson can tell you, I've got it right over here beside me, oh, yeah. and I'm still sweating. The thing is, I didn't anticipate that when I'm podcasting, you really need absolute quiet in the environment. Again, unless you have some really expensive mics, which I don't. I've already mentioned this. So I have to turn everything, ladies and gentlemen, off. I've got to turn even the smallest fans off. And then, yes, we sit here and we sweat the entire time we're doing our podcast. And so... If you've, been, if you've been invited on the show as a guest, it's best for you to decline a physical <laughs> visit and instead do the call in and we'll Bluetooth you in. Don't ever agree to come and actually sit on the couch. Jason, we're going to get in, I think, because it's important. I'd like to talk a little bit about how this became this, because I think it's sort of central to our story and, yeah. our, and our podcast. But um, before we do that, you know, I'll start with uh, the basics as you did. I mean, how is it that you came to be in this podcast, to want to explore this podcast, but mm-hmm. also just came into a life of academics? Like, how did how did it happen for you? Where did you get bit by the bug? Well, for me, I think there's a little bit of genetics and a little bit of um, nurture. Grew up in the rural part of South Carolina, which is anywhere except Charleston, Columbia, or Greenville to the extreme west, just below Greenville, in a small, um, torturous town called Abbeville, South Carolina, where Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, spent one of his last nights. Um, This is where South Carolina signed the papers to secede from the Union. But um, honestly, I, I challenged preconceived notions. I challenged history. I challenged all the things that I'd heard um, growing up in a, let's face it, part of the South that had a history of being pretty racist and pretty backwards. Um, I went to school with a lovely bunch of people. Um, About half of all of my schools were Caucasian and half black. And I honestly... didn't really make a distinction uh, between who was worth and who wasn't worth something, uh, who was important, who wasn't, who was popular, who wasn't. I found myself gravitating towards people that were just uh, thoughtful, kind, interesting, energetic. And I was reinforced throughout my childhood to dream, to fantasize, to think about really a better way of life for myself and for others. And, you know, I didn't really have any role models in my family. I was the oldest. My father had a little bit of college. My mother had quit school when she was in high school. Didn't really have hardly any relatives, grandparents that went to college or anything. So, you know, I was kind of at the mercy of just sort of my, my fantasies. I did okay in school. I was pliable. I was respectful to teachers. I didn't um, give them a hard time. I made mostly B's, occasional C in high school. Graduated probably 30 or 40th out of 100. And thankfully, there was a community college system that was just around the corner from where I was living. And it was just gentle enough to sort of call me, um, you know, 
kind of surreptitiously. Like I'd see a flyer here or there or a buddy of mine who's thinking about going back to college would say, you know, there's the community college. I, I'd heard from my dad. He had gone to this college years and years before for about a year. And so it's just enough to kind of whet my appetite. And I, yeah, I remember going um, down one Saturday morning, took a placement test and I didn't really think they were going to sign me up for classes. I mean, I didn't have any money or anything, but they went ahead and put me in classes after that placement test. And I thought, how am I going to pay for this? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we, uh, you can pay for it later. There's even payment plans. And I thought, wow, this is interesting. I've never bought anything uh, on a payment plan. How, how, how? I didn't know college was like this. So, yeah, started, started going to that school, and, you know, the rest is really history. I did quite well. Well, let me ask you, did you, you've been diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder? No. Oh, never. really? No, never so, Are you just guessing? I just guess. I just think about my own <laughs> symptoms, think about my own sort of uh, uh, weaknesses, liabilities. How did it, uh, so how did it uh, impact you growing up? And do you think, I mean, so in the late 70s, early 80s, mm-hmm. when you would have been noticing and your parents would have been noticing, wait a minute, you know, what's... Something's different. Something, something's different. Um, uh, do you think... No, I don't. Was it not widely diagnosed at no, the time? No, definitely think it not. Was never even to? never even heard of attention deficit disorder. Okay, um, until so why? How are you making this diagnosis? I'm, I'm I'm retrofitting it. I'm looking backwards. I'm thinking to myself, how distractible was I? Uh, how fidgety was I? Uh, how much what we call stimming did I do? Uh, where I'm manipulating physical objects, manipulating my fingers, um, humming, doing a lot of this kind of stuff. Um, ostensibly because it just soothed me. It was just something to do. But now when I talk to people with actual diagnosed ADHD, they say, yeah, it's a, it's like a coping mechanism. It's just, it's part of my illness. It's part of what I do. Um, but yeah, back then I just thought I was a little bit weird, a little bit, um, wormy. My parents used to call me wormy, uh, because I was fidgeting and moving around. I couldn't sit still. I couldn't stop talking. My mom used to say, uh, I was a motor mouth or that I would be a lawyer one day because I'd argue with a signpost. I just loved talking. I loved asking strange questions. I loved talking to friends who would kind of scat or brainstorm with me, do their own stimming, right? We would pretend to be, I mean, everything from comedians to actors to um, rock stars and everything in between, right? Anything that allowed me to express my creative side. And so... Luckily, I had some teachers that were um, interested in helping me express my creative side, some art teachers, some music teachers. Uh, but by the time I got to college, it was, it was even better because I realized, holy crap, these professors aren't enduring or pitying or just trying to ho- hold their breath and, and have me in the class. They actually, they actually think I'm worthy. They actually think my ideas have merit. They tell me. They see themselves in me. And I thought, wow, what? A college professor? I thought they would be... So is, is that where you found your academic role I th- models? I think perhaps. I mean, I said genetic college? because I know my dad loved history. He loved reading. He read a lot. I even hated him for it because he would go off in a room and read a book, and I wouldn't see him for two or three days. He loved these very uh, obscure, slow-moving, intellectual-style documentaries about everything from cows to mites on a chicken. It was just really, really strange stuff, I thought. Um, and yeah, as I grew older, I found myself gravitating towards some of these, these topics. 
gravitating towards documentaries and the nuance of things, right? Like what, what do we have skin for? Or, you know, how is our nose different from that of a bloodhound? Uh, these really obscure questions that I could spend hours and hours sort of investigating. Uh, so it was a culmination. I'm, I'm sure I had the genetic predisposition. I also had the internet come alive as I was older and was able to afford a computer and an internet connection. Like I said, I had college professors, even at the community college level, who were just tremendous assets to me, tremendous reinforcers and cheerleaders for me. I mean, they were saying to me, wow, you've got great ideas. Wow, you've got great energy. Love your questions. I mean, you you can do this. So what happens after community college? Where do you go next? Uh, after community college, I you go got the to, bug. No, I, I go to a small liberal arts school and some of the same types of professors at the community college or at the liberal arts uh, four-year institution. And so at this time, I'm going to say you're about 22, 23 years old. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, did you know um, after that point? Um, when you went to the liberal arts, like, did you know what path you were on? Did you know you yeah, wanted to be I, an educator at that point? Well, no, I just knew I was interested in psychology at that point. In fact, um, when I went to the was your intention to go in uh, as a as an academic or on the uh, clinical, clinical side? side yeah, oh, wow, okay. Clinical side. Yeah, I, I went in. Um, just a little backstory. I grew up with a mom who, you know, had been diagnosed with a severe mental illness, uh, a mood disorder. Uh, as early as my birth, really. And so she had lived with that her entire life until she died just a handful of years ago, actually. I remember thinking, man, wouldn't it be nice if I could figure out what's wrong with my mom, figure out how to treat or help my mom in some way, figure out how to best deal with my mother, figure out how to educate other people who judge my mother. I really thought that going to college for psychology, and again, back then I thought psychology was clinical psychology. I thought they were one and the same, like many of my students do today never realizing that 50% of everything that's done in psychology is done outside of the clinical realm, right? Well, the forensics, the social, the developmental, the business, the uh, industrial organizational. But anyway, I go to this first class called Careers in Psychology, I believe, with a uh, professor, Tim Snyder, from Akron, Ohio. Dr. Snyder asked in this class, Careers in Psychology, at Lander University, the first you know, major university I attended, out of the many I attended, he said, why are you here? You know, what got you here? Why psychology? And I remember saying, I want to fix my mother. I want to understand mental illness better. I want to see if I can stave off mental illness, my illness myself. I, I was really interested in understanding all of this. And um, he said, now I'm going to keep this, and when you guys graduate, I'm going to give it back to you and see how much your ideas have changed. Now, I didn't get it back. I forget why. Maybe he had moved on or he wasn't the chairperson anymore. But I will say that I talked to him just a handful of years ago. And I asked him for it back. I'd reached out to him on Facebook or something. He said, yeah, it may be still in the psych department, in an old box, in an old file in the department. He said, but (laughs) but based on what you can remember about it, he goes, you know, what would you say about, you know, that now if you if you could go back and have a conversation with that same kid who had started psychology with me, what would you say? And I'd say, man, yeah, psychology is so much more than understanding others or even understanding yourself. I mean, there's a lot of questions that psychology can help you answer. Um, there's a lot of things that's done for me, feed my curiosity, reinforce my imagination, 
encouraged me to keep moving forward and brainstorming and, you know, much like you were saying um, when I was interviewing you a few minutes ago, just give me an opportunity to dream, give me an opportunity to make connections between things that maybe a lot of people never even fathom were connected. Yeah, clinical psychology was what I thought I wanted to go into. I actually got a bachelor's degree in science with an emphasis in counseling from that school. Well, okay. And then my first foray into grad school was uh, down in Augusta, Georgia, uh, at what's now, I believe, called Augusta University. It's been several things. It's been Georgia Regents. It's been uh, part of the Medical College of Georgia. It's all part of the Georgia system, much like UNCW is part of the NC system. At any rate, when I first started there, I was on track to get a master's in clinical psychology. Um, and so all of my courses were very clinical. was very interested still in helping, figuring out what drives mental illness, what are the best treatments. But I wanted the scientifically valid treatments, right? I wasn't necessarily interested in curing or understanding mom anymore by this point, but I still had a, an appetite to understand psychopathology. But honestly, met a guy down there named uh, Rick Topolsky, and he was not a clinical psychologist. He was actually very skeptical of clinical psychology. He kind of referred to all of it as touchy-feely and fuzzy and kind of sketchy logic. Okay. And uh, I love this skeptical, almost cynical view. He helped me do a 180 where I became this big skeptic. I became really versed in research, had a lot of questions about methodology and design, got interested in statistics and um, sure. you know, the like, the experimental side. Yeah, I, I went to school to become a clinical psychologist, and I think I left with an appreciation of clinical psychology, but also a realization that there's way more to psychology. That really seems to, well, that also seems to fit, you know, sort of your personality, which isn't necessarily contrarian, but the more you research something, the more you seem to learn about something, um, not the more skeptical you become of it, but the more aware you become of some of its limitations. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't want to take this conversation directly down the same road that you took ours. Right. So I want to ask you a couple different questions sure. here. Um, now, you've been a psychologist. You've been a licensed... No, well, psych guy. We won't call me a psychologist because I don't, psych have the, guy. don't have the PhD in psychology, so right. I'm not going to call myself a psychologist. But you've been a psych guy. Yeah. Um, and you've studied psychology your entire a professional career. Yep, 25, 25 years. 25 years. Do you, because, you know, and I think a lot of people wonder this, do psych, do psych guys, do people who teach psychology mm -hmm. turn it off? So what I'm saying I mean, is maybe, you and I are sitting here. Yeah. So when, when you were interviewing me uh, earlier for the earlier episode, mm -hmm. I, are you psychoanalyzing some of the, or do you like accidentally fall into that sometimes? Like, Look, I, oh, think, I, know what that I means. think the wider public believes that People who study psychology have um, more knowledge than we really do. Almost like a yeah, baby a, medical degree yeah, in some or almost, ways, right? Well, or maybe baby. even like a sixth sense. Like, right, Like yeah. we're in on some kind of magic that yes, no one else is in I think, on. I think that's a... And nothing could be further from the truth. Like <laughs> I'm just as dumb as anyone else. I have just as many limitations and just as many biases. You just realize it. Um, now, <laughs> this goes without saying. Maybe there's something I missed in my clinical psych program because I, I chose to sort of move more towards research, statistics, methodology, design. Maybe I just wasn't a good clinical psychology student, and so I, I missed the memo. I didn't get the, the secret decoder ring to help me, you know, really look into the souls of people. But no, I don't. I don't really know anything about 
people. I can't psychoanalyze one person on the fly. I'm, maybe I'm decent at making predictions about large numbers of people, but I'm not very good at reading any one person, that's for sure. And so, no, I, I, don't, um, I don't consider myself especially adept. I don't have any kind of secret acumen uh, with which to analyze anyone. No. So, no, I don't have any trouble doing that. Honestly, what's going on in my mind when I'm interviewing you is I hope he keeps talking so I don't have to think of a better uh, so I don't have to think of a question. <laughs> well, I got I got a couple more, and I do want to get into your passions uh, and sort of you know what led us, what led you to mm-hmm. want to explore this podcast, um, to put so much into it. Yeah. Um, we mentioned you know the studio. I made the jokes about um, the heat, but it really is an incredible workspace. Uh, I think people would be really impressed to see, you know, the all the effort and all the time you've taken and. You know, I want to get into how that started a little bit in yeah. a second, but you know, Jason and I have been colleagues for eight years at least. Yeah. No, uh, ten years. Yeah, ten years. More um, like ten. I'm just going to tell a quick story. The first semester that I worked uh, with Jay, or the first year I finished, and I'm like, this is going to be my first summer off since high school. I'm so psyched. I'm done. I'm ready. Uh, I left early. I had to come back the next day, unfortunately, because I was so excited to be off for the summer. I left a bunch of stuff in my class, in my office. So I get in the office, and obviously everybody's gone except one person, and it's Jason. (laughs) And we weren't, like, really close. I mean, but Jason was always somebody who, you know, and I'd like you to talk about it a little bit. Like, you've always seemed to have a a special passion for sharing ideas about education, mentoring uh, other instructors who are just starting out or who or who've been there for 10 years and just want to glom on to some of your knowledge some of your expertise you've always mm-hmm. been like an open window with this stuff or an open door um but jason's sitting in there and he's actually going over every single class and looking at correlations and patterns of students who did well and students who did poorly and he's got everything printed out and i'm like what are you doing it's summer <laughs> he's like yeah i'm just uh I got, look, look, look what I found. Look at this. Look at the, look at what I found with this cohort of students. And this is, they got C's. And I'm telling you, they got C's. Look at the B's. The B's did this better, the A's. And, uh, you know, I want to emphasize he was not getting paid, which is still a little odd for me. But, you know, you've always taken that interest and passion in your students. And when we had the pandemic, I want you to talk a little bit about mm-hmm. how that passion Sort of, I mean, after 22 years, in my opinion, mm-hmm. kind of transformed you um, again. And I think you're always sort of trying to reinvent yourself and stay fresh. But, boy, you know, you could have done what a lot of instructors did and just sort of did the minimum. Or not the minimum, but just got by. Yeah. You or even retired. You, I know some, some people retired, yeah. You did not get by. Explain no. what happened during the pandemic, how you started with one crappy little piece of, uh, you know, screen, green screen upstairs, and, and how you just sort of turned it into re-enthused this. yourself a little bit. Well, thank you, first of all, for that, Nelson. Um, I, I don't think of it any, as anything special, the fact that I stay over um, when I'm not being paid. I, I, I really do uh, this uh, because I love it. It's a labor of love. It always has been. And I've always said to myself that if you, anyone ever asks what makes – me different as a potential candidate to sort of work at their institution of higher learning. To be frank with you, I, I say I'm probably the only candidate that would do it for free. I mean, in, <laughs> in graduate school, I actually wrote to a few colleges saying, 
I would love to volunteer my time as a teacher assistant or as a co-teacher or as a teacher of record, if you give me the chance, for no money. I don't need any credit. I just want to come do it. I pitched myself to a um, historically black college. I pitched myself to a private school or two. Like I was really out there wanting to do this, and I still feel the same way. And anyone who's ever just met me over a beer in a bar knows this. Um, you know, you don't have to pay for my lunch. Heck, I might even pay for yours. All you have to do is sit there and listen, and, man, I'll, I'll share it with you. Uh, but, no, getting back to the, the question at hand, more than my suspicion about having ADHD is the, the absolute certainty with which I know that one of my problems, one of my limitations, one of my concerns throughout my entire life, even to this day, is a fear of losing control. And I think this is a fear of a lot of people, but the way my fear of losing control has manifested itself is in the form of this kind of free-floating anxiety. I am a worry wart. I brood, I ruminate, I worry. I'm not sure if it was because I grew up so poor that I got a lot of practice being creative or if it was in spite of being poor, I just had friends that were creative that invited me to to think and do things creatively. But all I can say is every time I begin to fear, especially something existential, something that's going to change, I pivot. I've done this all of my life. You know, I, I'd work at a place and I would I would start seeing the writing on the wall that this place is not going to be here for long. So I'd start looking for another job. I was teaching at a small Methodist college in Madisonville, Tennessee in 1998. I got this weird feeling because we were through it. We were doing a Saks reaccreditation year. And I got this feeling the way everyone was running around and all the administrators were talking real silently that we weren't on good footing. We weren't on good standing. Mm. And I started applying elsewhere. Ultimately, I got the job at Cape Fear. And that school lost its accreditation. And after 160 years, that school is gone. It's nothing but an abandoned building now. Likewise, when this once in a generation or heck, once in a hundred year global pandemic surprised us back in February, January of 2020, you and I were together. Ladies and gentlemen, we were about to watch, I think, heck, the NCAA tournament had just kicked off. We, we were, were sitting at Dockside about, on uh, on the intercoastal waterway. We had we had tickets to go to the uh, ACC tournament. We had tickets to go to the ACC, ACC tournament. Quarterfinal. And man, everything started just closing down, just one game after another. Teams would come out, and then they somebody would test positive for this strange virus, and they just all close up shop and kick everybody out of the, the uh, marina. And I just remember thinking, holy crap, my greatest fear – a true existential threat was coming true. And I just felt like a kid again. But unlike a kid, I knew that I had some skill. I knew that I had some creativity. I knew that I had a work ethic. I knew that friends that I could lean on. And what I did was I went home and I just dove headlong into this world of distance learning. I got online and started signing up for any free class I could, for people who were teaching best practices. I signed up with people who were teaching um, audiovisual equipment. There's a guy from New York named Tom Buck who was a digital media 
specialist at a school in New York, did quite well for himself. During the pandemic, he pivoted and became a YouTube influencer. He just talks about gadgets and, you know, live streams. And I'm still somebody who watches him every Thursday. But yeah, I just surrounded myself with all of these people who were already doing this work in these digital spaces and realized, man, I don't know if I have the talent, but I'm going to pick and choose, right, what I'm learning from these different places, and I'm going to apply them to my classroom. And I remember thinking, oh, this is kind of cool. I'm getting some traction from some students, but it's not enough for me. I'm still feeling like there's something missing. So that's when I, I got with you and I told you, man, I just built a light board. You're like, what? I was like, yeah, man, listen, hear me out. I've got this plexiglass surrounded by wood. It's got these um, LED lights surrounding it. And the light kind of um, reflects through the glass. And when you put a certain kind of marker on it, it can look like you're literally um, writing in the air. And I learned how to flip the screen so that it didn't look like I was writing backwards anymore. And then I realized, oh, my God, man, you got to be careful about what kinds of clothes you wear when you're on camera. <laughs> now you got to worry about the lighting, the contrast, the, the lens. And so I went down that wormhole and started learning about lenses and started learning about best practice, practices for uh, teaching for the camera. And, yeah, long story short, I must have spent the better part of every day for two years that we were working from home taking classes um, watching YouTube videos, everything from how to get the best video out of your camera to what exactly is the difference between an aperture and an f-stop on a camera to uh, how do you non-linear edit using DaVinci Resolve or Final Cut Pro or, yeah, man, I just went to school. I went to school. And... um some people took notice. I started joining organizations online, and it was cool. It was like it was pretty – it was the great democratizer. Like here's a guy who, you know, I'm not super well-known, if at all, in um, the more professional psychological circles. I mean, you don't Google me in 2020 and find out that I'm at the top of the ranks in psychology or pedagogy or anything for that matter. But I feel like once the pandemic struck and I'm learning all these things, I'm starting to put this stuff together and starting to build these cinematic lectures. Um, and you, you did some of that with me. Oh, yeah. Uh, I put them out there into some of these groups. Some of these groups were 20,000, 30,000 members strong. Man, and everybody job. was hungry for an angle. Everybody was hungry to learn something new. Everybody was hungry to show what they knew. And the only way to do that was to have some kind of familiarity or some kind of expertise in the digital space. Like in 2020, I say democratizer because Nobel Prize winning psychology professors, there's only a few, but it didn't matter how good they were face to face. It didn't matter how good they were in their real physical labs. Can that stuff translate into the digital sphere? Because for all we knew, we were never going back into the school. Everything was going to be from a distance. So I felt like, man, I got a new start, and I'm going to try to get out ahead of everybody. Yeah, and you, you certainly did. Yeah. You, you certainly did, I think. And yeah. Um, and so. caught the eye of some people at UNCW, and that's when they, you know, reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to come and teach a class in psychology. And 
been there for the better part of three years. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's interesting that you talked about uh, anxiety. You also mentioned ADHD. Do you think, uh, you know, when I mentioned um, the connection that my disability had mm-hmm. and continues to have to my personality, to my to my work, yeah, um, to my focus or lack of focus, yep. would you say that anxiety and ADHD are things that have helped propel you to what yeah. I think most people would say is a very yeah, successful they career? They have. But again... You know, I was used to being yelled at as a kid. I, I was used to being poor. I was used to uh, being in dire straits all my life. So I didn't like, how should I put this? I think I have to be careful not to minimize or normalize um, or romanticize something like ADHD. First of all, I don't know if I really have it. All I know is that I am easily distractible. All I know is that it is difficult for me to start um, some task and finish some task because of the anxiety and uh, the negative emotion that I I feel associated with it. But I think that maybe a combination of things has allowed me to be okay despite the fact that I might have ADHD. I like you, went into a career that celebrates, reinforces curiosity, celebrates intellectual risk-taking. Creativity. Kind of creativity. Gives sort of plaudits to people who connect dots that other people can't see, right? I'm considered a trailblazer. I'm progressive because I'm taking intellectual risk. I'm, again, I'm asking questions that very few people have asked. I don't mean this in any Oh, I'm smarter than, but I'm just, I'm just crazy enough. I'm just flighty enough to just say, what the heck? Could there be something positive associated with ADHD? Could creativity and ADHD go together, right? So I I guess I don't, I don't, I'm not happy with the status quo. Well, and that was, uh, I guess that's sort of, you know, where I kind of want to leave it. What, uh, told you what I wanted to do with this, uh, what 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 is this for you? Why podcasting? Is it because you're not happy with the status quo? Is it because you're curious about something? What are you trying to do, and why did you want to, or why did we agree mm-hmm. to do this? Well, look, I think anyone who teaches for a living probably has a little bit of narcissism in them, a little histrionic personality. They want to be on stage. They want others to hear them. And my mom would tell you if she were still alive, I always wanted people to listen to me ramble on so there's a little bit of that and with that I know that I can see maybe 100 or 200 students a semester in the classroom but with podcasting I can reach potentially 7 billion people right the best I can do because I'm only one person is maybe reach a couple thousand depending on what school I teach at and how big my classes are right maybe a couple thousand a semester if I'm lucky go to a big school like Chapel Hill and maybe they give me a introductory psychology class where I teach five, 600 people. But with podcasting, right, with very little expertise, very little technical sort of prowess, click a couple buttons, and I can put my ideas, my thoughts, my lecture, my musings out there, and potentially 7 billion people can hear it. 
what I will say is going into it starting May 19th, but I mean, who's, who's keeping score, right? 111 days <laughs> was, ago or so. Was that our first? Going into uh, Yeah, yeah. Going right. into it, I really thought this will be a way for me to give psychology away. It'll be a way for me to sort of model intellectual discourse across disciplines. This idea of interdisciplinary sort of exchange of ideas, if you will, might inspire the next generation of thinkers. Maybe there's someone out there that, you know, I remind them of. And, and they're not certain what they want to do, and this is the catalyst that pushes them forward or keeps them going in education. But what I've found is, to be quite frank with you, as I do this, I realize that with 12, now 13 episodes under our belt, once a week, the best I'm probably going to do is maybe 500 episodes, maybe 1,000 if I'm lucky before I leave this earth. <laughs> in, in some weird way... <laughs> In sort of a weird way, this podcast reminds me of my mortality. And every time I look at my kids, I'm reminded of my mortality. But instead of, you know, just throwing my hands up in the air and saying, well, it's, what can you do? What is, is, and what will be, what be, will be, I say, you know what, I'm going to celebrate. I'm going to lean into this thing. I'm going to leave my children perhaps thousands maybe 10,000 hours of my thoughts, my musings, for better or worse. For better or worse, they're going to know who their dad was. You know, if I died tomorrow, they've got 13, 15 hours worth of dad talking about topics as varied as Sigmund Freud's life and times to, you know, the good life, pleasure, indulgence, sex. So I'm excited to keep going because I want to, touch on as many questions, as many people, as many topics. I want to give as much of myself as possible and um, let my kids know who their dad was. I think that's, uh, I think that's a really good place to leave it Yeah, um, because we definitely have a lot more to get to. Uh, why don't you just run down just a couple of the snacks that we have coming up for fall. Talk oh, man, a little look, about Halloween. What well, else I know we got? We were talking about Halloween, we're talking about putting death on the couch. College. Uh, talking about putting college on the couch. Maybe an episode on ADHD. Still got to get tragedy and comedy on the couch. And when we're thinking about this. Maybe even cats. Oh, we we did dogs. We, we might need to focus you on cats. You got to drop the cats. Come on. We yeah, gotta got to do cats. Got man. so much editing to do with the cats. Not Meow. because. Yeah, yeah. We, we just talked about cats four or five different times, ladies and gentlemen. And I've got. Lots of different clips that I need because all that's my favorite topic. Need to put together like a big, big jigsaw puzzle. And I, I personally, you know, as much as I enjoy editing, I, I don't have cats. don't have as much fun editing. He's a hater. He's a cat. <laughs> I don't hater. think I'd have as much fun editing <laughs> cats. Oh uh, well, well, I think uh, one thing we also talked about uh, if how people are interested is uh, put them on the court. Yeah, we, we big college. We, we talked about fans. maybe uh, once a week, once every two weeks. Um, talking a little bit about sort of the, what's going on in college basketball. Obviously, as a Duke Blue Devil fan, I can speak very um, authoritatively about that. Uh, Nelson I'm a, I'm here a UConn is, Husky Nelson fan. Nelson here is a UConn Husky fan. And what you might not know about Nelson is, talk about his optimism. Let me say this, ladies and gentlemen. Last year, when <laughs> UConn was just kind of flailing, kind of— They weren't flailing. They weren't flailing, but it was just kind of middle of the road, right? I mean, they weren't— very good. That you know they were going to lose to a couple teams in the Big East. Marquette, these these teams, Creighton had their number. And I remember thinking, man, you know they'll get in the tournament, right, Nelson? He goes, oh yeah. I was like, 
but they probably won't do very much. They won't, they won't have a true guard. They're not going to have guard play. And you know, you know what Charles Barkley says about that. Guards win national championships. Nelson's like, yeah, yeah, I know. This guy, ladies and gentlemen, after UConn gets in and wins like maybe their first game. Two. Sweet two games. He goes and gets a tattoo of like a national championship ring added to his body. That's right. The writing was on the a wall. Had permanent, to be in the a permanent inking that celebrates the Yukon Huskies winning a national championship and they had only made it to the Sweet 16. And you still had powerful teams in well, I mean, the tournament. Yeah, but we also had Yukon in the tournament. So <sighs> it was a fate complete. Talk my friend. about belief. It was a fate complete. Hey, I don't know that I would lean into those hunches quite like Nelson did. And if I had a hunch about anything, I'd probably go and play the lottery. As much as I love the Duke Blue Devils, I would never, ever get a tattoo just because they made it to the Sweet 16. I, I don't, I I don't believe that it strongly. It was preemptively celebratory. And in the words of 21st century philosopher Taylor Swift, haters going to hate. This Ladies guy was so upset. Oh, God. We'll leave it right there. Thanks again, as always, Thanks, for listening. Guys. And thank you, Nelson, for being so forthright about your um, about who you are and, and what, what makes you the political science slash history hybrid. And thank you for bringing the psych to your own couch and uh, being insightful and self-evaluative. Thanks again, ladies and gentlemen. And don't forget to visit our um, YouTube page, our Instagram, TikTok, and maybe even drop us an email at putthemonthecouch at gmail.com. And if you have any ideas for us, put those in the inbox. Thank you.